also what sort of happened to me after getting divorced and leaving religion and all of that was this uh, total inversion of my paradigm of reality because I had this Christian God in my mind my whole life, which gave me certainty, right? And something to cling on to. And when I disavowed my belief in that version of the divine, I was kind of open to anything. And it's like, well, what is true in, in reality? And is there really a God? And maybe there isn't. And I had to wrestle with those questions. You know, when we use this word duality, which is a commonly used term in spirituality, duality is uh, the belief in separation, essentially. But I like to see duality through the lens of believing that there is an inside world and an outside world. Welcome back to Reconditioned with me, Lauren Vaknin. I am really excited and honored to have recorded today's episode. Um, Aaron Abke is such a light in this world and following his work and his teachings, his YouTube channel is incredible. And just kind of, even his little snippets on Instagram give me so much insight and so much food for thought. And I heard him on a podcast and I was like, I have to get him on. His, his knowledge and his wisdom is almost too, he, he's, he's way above his years, you know? And um, there is so much insight that the things he was speaking about really got me thinking in different ways. And he talks a lot about what really is the meaning of consciousness and that is what we are constantly having to bring ourselves back to. Because without the understanding of what consciousness means for us as human beings, as cosmic beings living this human experience, how are we ever going to evolve? And he speaks about it in such a way that really brings us back to the truth of consciousness, the truth of who we are, the truth of self. And his discussion on kind of his journey from devout Christianity to moving into the teachings of A Course in Miracles, Kundalini Awakenings. We really went deep into um, sexual empowerment, sexual energy, Kundalini Awakenings, sacred sexuality, and how that plays a part with relationships and enlightenment just through kind of awakening that energy in ourselves. Mind-blowing stuff. So I'm so looking forward to you hearing it um, and just immersing yourself in this as much as I mean I didn't realize as I was filming this that this was going on for like an hour and 40 minutes because it was that deep and intense and powerful and amazing so um I'm excited for you to hear this episode if you enjoy it which I know you're you're going to please please share the episode share the love rate and review the podcast because it helps us reach more people and as usual I thank you for being here Something that has always been a bit of a challenge for me, and I know it is to most people I speak to, is fitting in the time for all the spiritual and self-development practices I want to do. You know, I'd like to meditate and do breath work and yoga and walk in nature and connect with my guides and journaling and so much more, all the things every day. But we can't do all the things every day. I'm a mum, I run a business, and even as someone who really does put this stuff first, it's pretty impossible to fit it all in. So the one thing that's really helped me over the past year is the Sensate. It is a piece of health tech that fits in the palm of your hand and it basically sends infrasonic waves through the chest to activate the vagus nerve and calm the autonomic nervous system. And you use it while playing the specially composed audio within the app actually pretty genius and honestly at the moment with my days being more full-on than they've ever been 
using the Sensate is really the one thing that I know will work on so many aspects of my well-being at once. So even if I haven't had time to do any other practices during the day, I lie down at night and I use the Sensate for 10 to 20 minutes before I sleep and it reduces cortisol levels, it calms my brainwave states, it gives me great optimized sleep, it calms anxiety, and because of how it activates the vagus nerve, it deepens my meditation. So I can kind of do all that in one go. And I also take it everywhere with me. So if I've got 10 minutes in the car while I'm waiting for the school gates to open, I can just do it then without the pressure of knowing that meditation would be a bit challenging when I'm probably in heightened brainwave states at that point. So for me generally, it's been pretty life-changing. And if what I spoke about resonates with you at all, you can get £30 off the Sensate by visiting getsensate.com and using code Lauren30. That's G-E-T-S-E-N-S-A-T-E.com, Lauren30. Thank you so much to Sensate for supporting our mission here at Reconditioned. Aaron, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Lauren. Pleasure to be with you. Yeah, you know, I've been following you for a while now and um, so interested in everything you speak about because I came across um, A Course in Miracles probably way later than I should have done. Uh, you know, I can't believe that it's taken me this long to find it. And, and my... Um, I think that's how we all feel. <laughs> right? Yeah, it was a, a spiritual um, a teacher of mine told me about it. She teaches it about a year ago. And I was like, how have I never heard of this? And then as happens with all things that you're meant to come into contact with, I started seeing it everywhere. Of course, in miracles, of course, miracles. Mm -hmm, yes, yeah. mm -hmm. So that, as, as well as all the other incredible stuff you talk about, is really what I want to talk to you about today. But before we get started, I always start by asking the same question, which is what have you done so far today to support your wellness? I know it's early in the States right now, but I'm sure that you'll have a great answer for us. Well, I get started with my wellness very early, so... That works out. So I, I always start my mornings the same way. My wife and I will get up, go on a walk, uh, about a 40-minute walk, pretty much right away. What we do, um, we've been doing this thing called a liver bomb lately, which is fun. It's a, a little shot of like tablespoon and a half of extra virgin olive oil with a teaspoon of cayenne pepper and some lemon juice. Wow. And that kind of gets the organs flowing and optimized for the day. So we start off with that. Then we come back and I do a 30 minute meditation after the walk and then, uh, start to make morning coffee and do a little reading and then probably start a workflow around nine o'clock. Usually. Sounds amazing. Sounds like the perfect yeah. morning. And I love, I love mornings. <laughs> I do. I'm such a morning person. Always have Same. been. My sister's the opposite. She's like, she could sleep till like, I don't even know when. Luckily me and my husband are both morning people. Um, and I like, I, I don't know, I just like to see that morning light and yeah, it's a special time of the day. I love that you go for a walk with your wife. That's so nice. Yeah. I think the way you start your day really is important and kind of sets a precedent for the whole day, right? Yeah, totally. I find that as well. I also find that there is something about the light in the morning that inspires me. That is very different to later on in the day. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons why we go on a walk is not just for all the health benefits of walking, but, you know, the um, getting that early morning sunlight in your retina yeah. kind of sets your circadian rhythm for the day. So if you want to have a good sleep clock schedule and get tired at the right time, you got to get light in your eyes 
pretty much right away when you wake up. Yeah, absolutely. We we recently did a um, an episode on red light therapy with a red light expert talking all about, you know, that early morning light for the infrared light that we need to be able to see. Yeah. And um, and how looking at and also that's the time of day where you get or you absorb the most vitamin D. So all in all, a great. Yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't actually mention that, but I also do. I also do red light when I'm meditating. I put a little red light box kind of on my face. So also part of my routine for sure. Oh, wow. So you actually have that on while you're meditating. Uh-huh. Amazing. I want to get into, I actually kind of wanted, one when you were speaking about that, one of the first questions I want to ask you is about what your meditation practice looks like. But to give that context, I'd love for you to go into your story and your journey a bit because it's so interesting to kind of really give context to what it is you do now and why you do it. Yeah. So, you know, I grew up as a pastor's kid in an evangelical denomination of Christianity and it was just a super passionate, super devout follower of Christ my whole life and wanted to follow my dad's footsteps as a pastor one day. So I went to Oral Roberts University for college got my bachelor's degree in music and theology and started uh, right at 22 years old as a full-time worship pastor at a, a church in San Jose, California, where I grew up and was born and raised. And then that's really where everything started shifting profoundly for me because, you know, if, did you grow up with any kind of religious background? Yeah, I'm Jewish. So I grew up um, not very, not very devout, um, traditional, but, but yeah, very much with kind of that, that ethos of community and um i wouldn't say worship but yes mm -hmm. grew up, grew up yeah. definitely with um with religion as part of the culture yeah well then you probably know how it is as you're growing up in a religion even if you weren't as kind of strict or devout as i was anyone who grows up in a religion eventually has to start making sense out of the um Kind of, sort of like sifting the the gold from the trash in their religion, right? Because every religion has a golden thread of truth through it. And so our job as spiritual seekers, even from a young age, is to begin finding what that golden thread is and weeding out some of the dogmatism and fundamentalism that is kind of man's influence on religion rather than God's. And so I started doing that around 18 years old, but had a lot of questions and internal conflicts with my religion that I didn't feel comfortable voicing to anyone because, you know, it's just in the culture of like, we don't really ask these questions and we don't, we don't have these conversations because they can easily become, you can easily be accused of backsliding or heresy or whatever if you question too much. So it wasn't until I was 23 after about three to six months into my church job that I was working at a church that was very dogmatic compared to my parents' church growing up, um, we I really was blessed to grow up in a wonderful church that was not super religious and fundamentalist in that way, but really emphasized worship, as you said, and just the love of God, devotion to God. You know, God loves everyone. Jesus loves everyone. So really the, the best parts of Christianity were strongly emphasized, and we just didn't talk much about hell or biblical inerrancy or any of those kind of things. But when I got to be that age, I just couldn't couldn't reconcile them anymore and felt like I've got to decide what I believe is true about God. And so that ended up causing me to leave my religion at 23, kind of blow up my whole life and accept that 
every single friend I have is Christian. Every single family member I have is Christian. I only ever went to Christian schools. So it's like, I have to kind of start my life over if I'm going to leave my religion. And so that's what I did at 23. I also was married at 22 or 23 and got divorced at 26 because when I left Christianity in that way, my wife at the time and my paths kind of just did this more and more. And so moved back to California at 26 and just started my whole life over, moved back in with my parents, which no 26-year-old wants to do. And uh, got a job working at Google as a personal trainer uh, for sort of like the corporate uh, employees of Google. And that's really where my deep seeking began, where I was diving into enlightenment teachings, Eastern teachings, and had a kind of spiritual awakening event at 27 that really changed the course of my life in a profound way that eventually led into me doing what I do now on YouTube and whatnot. The advice I get asked for probably more than anything else is supplements. Where do I get my high quality supplements? I am so particular about my supplements and I research every single ingredient right down to what the capsule shell is made of, which is why my clients trust my recommendations so much. Now, because I'm super picky, I get all my supplements from Amrita Nutrition and I found them about a decade ago because they were the only UK stockist to stock seeking health products which were developed specifically for MTHFR and I've stayed with them ever since because they literally stock the absolute highest quality brands from all over the world like Moss Nutrition, Quicksilver, Apex and so many others that I love and I know that anything I get from them is going to be the utmost highest quality. They also offer personal support at every stage from their customer care team and in-house nutritional practitioners. So you can order using practitioner invite code Lauren, which will get you 10% off all supplements, which will be applied to every order once you've set up an account. And you can also create your own protocols once you've set up an account, which is pretty cool. And I've gone ahead and created a collection of all my favorite supplements with Amrita, which you can find in the show notes or on my website. Otherwise, just visit amritanutrition.co.uk and don't forget to use code Lauren for 10% off. Thank you so much to Amrita for... It's so interesting when you were talking about, you know, that time where you start having to sift through what is your truth and, Mm -hmm. you know, what, what it is you've always been told... I know that happened to me as well very much, you know, coming into my own adulthood and having to sift through all of that stuff and so much stuff didn't make sense and so much stuff that I was raised with, I was like, this, it just doesn't make sense and I need to find my own path. And I yeah. really, I, I, it was like, have you ever read that book, The Life of Pi? No, but I've seen the movie. Yeah, so you know he like seeks every religion and every kind of yes, you know ethos, and I, I kind of did that. I went to like, you know, the Buddhist school in in London and the Kabbalah Center, and you know the Krishna consciousness and all of it. And it's so interesting because when you do that, I think that is for me anyway what brought me more deeply to you know quote unquote spirituality because, like you said you realize that there is this thread of truth that runs through every religion and it's the same thing, which I would say is probably love. Um, And so you start exploring 
kind of from there. Um, so it was just really interesting mm. when you said about, you know, really having that moment of, I guess it's, it's like this internal chaos, right? Where you just don't know what to, what's true. And it's like an identity crisis. Oh, yes. Yeah, well, that's also what sort of happened to me after getting divorced and leaving religion and all of that was this uh, total inversion of my paradigm of reality because I had this Christian God in my mind my whole life, which gave me certainty, right? And something to cling on to. And when I disavowed my belief in that version of the divine, I was kind of open to anything. And it's like, well, what is true in, in reality? And is there really a God? And maybe there isn't. And I had to wrestle with those questions, which I think this is the, the journey of the soul, right? The hero's journey. We all need to go through this journey. Religion can be the catalyst for a lot of people, but even people that don't grow up religious also have to answer these same questions of what is the purpose of life? Why are we here? Is there a deeper meaning or purpose behind this physical reality we're experiencing? And when you really ask those questions from a heartfelt, genuine place, in my experience, the universe loves to give you answers. It just can't or won't give you those answers when you're clinging on to a belief system like a religion. You know, the universe will honor your free will and not force you to see the truth. But anytime we cling on to a belief system that's not fully true in reality, there will be karma associated with that, right? That will cause us suffering and conflict. And that suffering and conflict, like you said, is the driving force to eventually question things. So where did it lead you to? So I started, you know, really looking at Buddhism and Hinduism, most especially Alan Watts, Eckhart Tolle, uh, different teachers like that, which were kind of my gateway into uh, really deep enlightenment teachings, such as Advaita Vedanta. And I, I didn't find the books that I'm teaching from these days, such as The Law of One and A Course in Miracles, until after I had that really profound awakening experience at 27, where uh, I was, again, going through my dark night from... I have no friends anymore. All my family members and most of my friends think I'm a heretic now. I was constantly engaging in these Facebook debates with people who wanted to challenge me on why I was backsliding and stuff. So just a lot of negativity, you know, in my energy field, which was forcing up all the unhealed stuff and the shadows. So I was really in this deep depression and this dark night of the soul at that age where I was working at Google and long story short, I was listening to Eckhart Tolle lectures on my lunch breaks at that time. And it was like the one time of my day that I could feel like I had some peace and relief from the mental narration and the depression, right? And probably like two or three months into that, I had a, a certain lecture I was listening to one day at lunch where Eckhart Tolle would kind of give voice to these basic stories that ego tells us, such as, if only people would recognize how important I am, then I would truly be happy. And he would sort of laugh after he said each one of them, and I would laugh with him. And I was recognizing the parallels of what Eckhart was saying to my own ego and the, the stories I was struggling with. And it just kind of switched on a light of awareness that hadn't been switched on yet that showed me that, yeah, this voice I've, I'm calling me is not really me. It's more of like an evolutionary program in the human mind or in human consciousness 
which is all about survival and self-preservation. And it's like all humans have this construct we call the ego. So if I'm not that voice, who am I? And when that question was asked while listening to the, that lecture, it all, you know, it all happens in an instant. I didn't talk myself through it like I just did. But that question of well, who am I then just was born in the mind. And it was as if a curtain was pulled back or something. And I was sort of permitted into another realm of absolute oneness and unity. And it's like I saw the fabric of the universe for the first time, which was oneness. And the answer to that question of who am I was very obvious. It was like, oh, I'm everything. I am the universe itself, just having this experience. And it was such an, a profoundly blissful and happy realization that it sort of hogtied my ego into a broom closet for two full weeks where I only experienced that heightened state of bliss and oneness um, for two full weeks. And every single moment of my day, that light of awareness was just shining through clearly and easily without any effort on my part. And so I was enjoying this kind of sudden enlightenment for two weeks until I woke up two weeks on the day. I looked at my phone when my alarm went off for work and noticed it had been two weeks exactly and so then the first real egoic thought crept back in and said, oh, wow, I've been in this state for two full weeks now. I wonder if I'm permanently enlightened. I wonder if this is now my new permanent state, right? So there was now a separate self claiming that state for itself, right? And I didn't catch it because I didn't have much experience yet observing my ego. So giving the ego permission to come back into my mind and identifying with it caused that state to quickly unravel. And I was back in the depression again within a matter of days. And I could feel this heavenly state like slipping through my fingers, like a bar of soap, and I could not uh, hold on to it. And so that actually made my dark night much worse because when you taste what heaven is like to that extent, and then you're thrown back into the pit of hell again, it makes hell a lot worse because now you have the contrast of what's available. But what I always say is that that was God's real gift to me through that experience was the contrast of heaven versus hell, unity versus separation, is that once I had no doubt remaining in my mind that there is, that that state of consciousness is available to the human being, then it's like, what else is really worth living for anymore? I've, I've already tasted the best that, that reality has to offer and nothing else measures up. I don't care about feeling important in people's eyes anymore. I don't care about material pleasures anymore. All I want is that freedom and that happiness again. And so that's what birthed this gigantic um, flame, this fire of passion in my heart to do whatever it takes to back engineer myself into that state of consciousness which is how I sort of came into the understandings that I teach now on my YouTube channel and in my programs, such as the three beliefs of ego and the three levels of healing, uh, the three bodies of consciousness. All these ideas were gradually realized as I was going through this healing journey. So it's kind of the classic, um, was it Chiron in astrology? That's like the wounded healer, mm -hmm. I think. You know, your pain becomes your purpose, right? You teach through what you've healed in yourself. And that's very much, you know, the road I've gone down in my life. So tell me about A Course in Miracles. I'd love for everyone listening to understand what, because I mean, it's a mammoth 
text. <laughs> it's not like a book that you just flip through or read, you know, from cover no. to cover. <laughs> so can you explain what it is and, and what exactly it's teaching? Yeah, so A Course in Miracles is a channeled text from the early 1970s from a woman named Helen Shuckman, uh, who was a professor of uh, psychology, I believe, at um, Oxford. Was it Oxford, I believe? And basically, her and a colleague named William Thetford, who was also a professor of psychology, were having these conversations because there was a lot of, I guess, like political tension at their school at the time. There was a lot of strife and infighting amongst their colleagues. And so they were talking as psychologists about like, wh why is there so much dysfunction here amongst fully uh, developed adults? Like, shouldn't we have a better thought system to live by or a better way of being in the world? Like, why does everything always result in conflict? There's got to be a better way. And that thought that Helen had or that sort of inspiration she felt of there must be a better way really opened uh, her to the divine realm that was looking is always looking to give answers to these questions when seekers truly ask these questions. And so she starts receiving these mental messages and sort of downloads all the time that are with her constantly. And one of the voices that she was hearing in her mind kept saying, this is a course in miracles. Please take notes. notes. And so she was like, man, this is really weird. What's that? And I'm laughing at the word notes because, it, I mean, it's like an encyclopedia. Right. <laughs> yeah, she didn't know how many notes she'd be taking. <laughs> but she she confided in William, her colleague, about this voice in her head. And he said, well, hey, why don't you just listen to the voice, start taking the notes that are coming through, and uh, we'll go over them together. And if it's crazy, you know, we'll we'll shut the blinds. Nobody has to know. And we can just burn it. No one has to ever find out. But... Maybe something profound wants to come through. So she was like, okay, that's what I'll do. She then the next time she heard that voice, she grabbed a pen and paper and starts writing what she's hearing. So this is called um, automatic writing for those who are familiar with channeling, where you're just sort of listening to your thoughts and the flow of inspiration and just writing stream of consciousness. And so the whole Course in Miracles was written like that. And one of the first opening lines kind of summarizes the text very well. And this was one of the lines that I came across very early in my seeking journey, but uh, I didn't feel called to read the text at that time because the little bit I looked up about A Course in Miracles said, hey, you know, this is a really advanced spiritual text. If you're not a very advanced spiritual adept, you probably won't get much out of it. So save this text for later in your spiritual journey. And so I just kind of believed that and didn't think I was prepared to read it. But this one line kept reappearing, which says, nothing real can be threatened, nothing unreal exists, and herein lies the peace of God. And so as all divine truth does, that resonated so strongly with me as being true. And so eventually I was inspired to just start reading that text, um, again, probably a year or so after that kind of sudden enlightenment experience. And to give you a, a short quick summary of what the course is. I call it sort of like a handbook to enlightenment that is written through the Christian language. So the, the author who is the ch channeling the text through Helen appears to be uh, Jesus, Yeshua, 
who walked on this planet, you know, 2000 some odd years ago, who's kind of trying to deliver his real message and teaching, which didn't fully make it into the gospel writings through the people who wrote down his message decades later, which is really all about um, knowing the knowing truth versus illusion, or as I said earlier, unity versus separation. The course kind of says, Hey, there's just, there's really just two thought systems available to you. There is the thought system of unity or oneness and the thought system of separation or ego. And most human beings are fully in this thought system, believing that I'm something separate from you. You're separate. We're all separate from this universe that is disconnected. And, you know, I'm down here by myself trying to figure life out and, and fight to get to the top and whatnot. And the course says, this is really the only problem you have is that you think you're separate from your source. And so it uses terms like the Christ, which represents our spiritual state of being. You know, everyone is the Christ. Everyone has that Christ consciousness in them, but it's covered up by layers and layers of personal ego and personal identities, which have to be seen and recognized and eventually discarded, right? So it's this amazing blueprint to how you can back engineer your mind into that state of true liberation. And the kind of the main teaching that the course gives, which I think makes it extremely unique in the spiritual landscape, is that it teaches the practice of forgiveness as the path to heaven. Because forgiveness really is the undoing of all your wrong identities, your wrong thinking, and your judgments about reality. And so the course says, once you let your judgments go about reality, once you stop thinking you're a separate person, that reality of oneness I talked about is actually very clear and self-evident. And so it has <clears throat> uh, a big part of the text is just called the text, which goes through all the basic teachings. And then there's the 365 daily lessons, which is always where I recommend people start with ACIM. Uh, just start January 1st, do the daily lessons for a full year. Don't even worry about the text for now. And the lessons give you those core teachings and like kernels of truth in a very simple way that you can actually start practicing and implementing. So I give a lot of credit to A Course in Miracles for what it was able to do for my state of consciousness by slowly helping me walk myself back into that state of oneness that I experienced for those two weeks to where eventually, you know, it's people always ask like, what's, what is your experience like now versus in that two week state? And the, the basic answer I would give is that for those two weeks, you know, oneness was a very novel experience. It was like, whoa, this is mind blowing. Everything is one. And I wasn't used to that yet. Whereas after, you know, six, seven, eight years of intense spiritual devotion and practice to to make oneness a normal state of awareness, all the same qualities are there, like the the, the inner freedom, the happiness, the, the feelings of bliss, but it doesn't feel novel or profound. It, it actually feels very normal and almost childlike, right? Like kindergarten level of, of, of course, everything is one. There's, there couldn't be a simpler understanding to have. It's just, uh, it's just like Jesus said in the gospels, the kingdom of heaven is already spread out across the earth, but men are unaware of it. I, I love that you've ended that section with that because I'm a big fan of two books. I'm a big fan of many books, but two books in particular 
and we'll get back to Course in Miracles in a second, but two books in particular really did something for me, and those books are um, Conversations with God by Neil Donald Walsh mm-hmm. and Outwitting the Devil by Napoleon Hill. Um, nice. Have you, have you read Outwitting the Devil? Because it only came out... Mm-hmm, a long time ago. Yeah, so it fascinating for me that he wrote it in the 30s it only came out in like 2011 or something um Mm -hmm. and both of those things you know talking about god and the devil come back to when you're in religion you know kind of the abrahamic religions you have this belief that hell is a physical place like a place you go to that's right you know fire and horrible people are there and there's some you know guy with a pitchfork and and mm-hmm. heaven, again, heaven is this place that you go to if you're good enough. And, yeah. you know, someone deems that you have been good enough in this life to go there. And what yeah. those books did for me, which is kind of exactly what you've just said, is show me that heaven and hell are internal states that we create for ourselves based on our mm-hmm. thoughts, our actions, our ideologies. People are creating hell for themselves every day. Yeah. For the simple fact, and some people are doing it through religion, through the fear, you know. Oh, yes. And I actually wanted to ask you about fear coming from such a devout background as you did. And now doing what you do, how do you feel about fear? Well, I think fear is the ultimate control weapon of the, um, I'll sometimes call it the negative polarity. Uh, It's a law of one teaching of there's the positive polarity and the negative polarity of consciousness. And as a soul, one of our big tasks here in this, um, it's called third density, the realm that we're in, is to choose which polarity we want to be. Do I want to be a positively polarized soul and continue my evolutionary journey through the positive polarity, which we could summarize as love, oneness? Or do I want to be a negatively polarized soul and continue my evolutionary journey down the negative path, which is the path of separation? And so beings who are choosing the negative polarity use separation as the ultimate control weapon. And we see it especially weaponized, maybe a little more unconsciously so, but very heavily weaponized in the Abrahamic religions, especially Christianity and Catholicism, that, uh, hey, if you don't believe this way, like, oh yeah, God gives you free will to believe whatever, but if you don't, you're going to burn in hell forever. So it's like, oh, so there goes free will, right? It's, it's like a wedding proposal with a gun to the bride's head. It's not a real proposal. It is forced control and manipulation. And so that's the picture that religion paints of the divine. And so we live in this fearful kind of state or relationship with the divine, which fear inherently is implying separation. You don't fear something that you are or that you are one with, you fear something you are not. And so that fear of God, which is touted as a virtue in religion, is actually the ultimate device to keep you from knowing God. And I think as we began this conversation having, when you truly love God, when you love truth and and the divine, you can't stand, you can't be complacent from that state of separation any longer. There's a there's an aching in you to become one with God. And you know that that means you have to overcome this fear of God being a wrathful, punishing, you know, um, angry deity that's scorekeeping all the time. 
And so the beautiful truth we come into realizing is that there is a lot of truth to what religion says. It's it's not that religion is is not true. It's actually that what religion teaches is way more true than even religion realizes. And the whole like punishing God and ideas and stuff is actually like a dumbed down version of the true nature of the universe, which is all about karma and free will, which says that the whole universe is in perfect balance. You know, God is balance, harmony, perfection, wholeness. And so the universe is a reflection of God. And so to the degree we obey that law of oneness and flow with it, I call it giving and receiving, giving to the universe and receiving from the universe, then we're in the flow and we're creating, as we call that dharma, right? Or positive karma. We're attracting um, uh, positive circumstances to ourselves. We're creating reality in a more loving, holistic, harmonious way. But when we try to take or resist the universe, possess it, control it, anything in the universe, we are violating that law, right? Of balance by creating an imbalance. We're trying to possess something and keep it for ourselves or resist and push away something that the universe is doing. And that's what generates negative karma. And it's it's not personal at all. It's just the law of balance that all energy has an equal and opposite reaction. So whatever you're giving out will come back to you in equal measure uh, to the exact extent you violate the law of the universe. The law will violate you in equal measure to keep that balance. And as we also have said, that's also the way the universe teaches us, right? By us getting to see the consequences of our actions and our thoughts and our thinking, we have a chance to say, let me think differently now. Let me have a new relationship with life. And then we evolve and we expand our consciousness. So it's all perfect in its divine order. But you can see how ancient humans would have thought, oh, there's a deity that punishes us for doing evil and rewards us for doing good. It's like, yeah, that's sort of true, right? But it's actually much deeper than that. Because I always think about with religion, you know, I I think back to, I mean, there's examples all throughout history, right? You look at the witch hunts and how they used religion or even with slavery. I know in the Deep South, you know, in the States, they would say things about how that was in the Bible and, or, you know attacking gay people mm-hmm. or whatever it is you know that christianity took or all religions took um to that extent and it was all based on fear and being able to manipulate people into those you know mis mistruths non-truths through fear so it's kind of the exact opposite of what religion for me i always just felt like religion all the religions started for the same reason and had like you say that thread of truth through them and mm-hmm. then humans got involved and i don't believe that there could possibly be everything that's written by humans in this you know biblical text can be the absolute truth of what is and that we're meant to be reading between the lines a little bit and i think maybe that's where we went wrong. I know when I was studying Kabbalah, I was in my early 30s, and they don't let you study um, the majority of it or the main bulk of it until you're after after you're 40. They believe that you don't wow. have, yeah, they, they, that you don't have, I'm going to mess up exactly their terminology for it, but it made sense to me that we don't really have that wisdom, that capacity for wisdom and understanding until 
maybe that age, if we've been learning spiritual stuff, you know, for mm. a while until then. And that kind of makes sense. Um, I wonder how, how you feel about Christianity now, because, it, you know, all those, the terminology in A Course of Miracles, the Christ, Christ consciousness, some people from other religions might find that off-putting, but I'm guessing that maybe Christians find that off-putting as well. And I wonder where you're at with that, but also with Christianity as a whole. Do you, do you see yourself as Christian now? I very much do. Yeah. I, I feel like I'm more of a Christian now than ever, but what does that word mean, right? Christian is uh, technically the meaning of that word means a follower of Christ or the follower of the way of Christ. And I certainly would say that I am a follower of the way of Christ, but uh, fundamentalist Christians would disagree strongly with my my interpretation of Christ and they have their own. So it's just, you know, words always fail us at a certain point, but from the reflections I've seen from Christians about ACIM, they very much believe it's a, you know, demonic evil text that's trying to distort the words of Jesus into some evil teaching, which I think is hilarious because if they studied it, they would see it's all about love and forgiveness and that God is love. That's the only thing the text teaches. Uh, it just, it just teaches the basic difference that while Christianity makes the devil a real entity that is actually opposing God, right? And somehow uh, warring against Almighty God and even stealing three fourths of God's children into eternal damnation. You know, if, if you take the Christian view to be true, you have to accept that the devil out, outplays God three to one. Because at, at the highest estimations, you could only say that. 25% of the world is Christian. It's probably a lot less than that, but Christians will say about a quarter of the world is Christian. Even if that's true, the devil's beaten God three to one devil takes three of God's children to hell. God gets to keep one in heaven. Does that sound like an omnipotent God to you? Not to me. And that's what the course basically says is that evil does not exist. There is no other power that can oppose the one power of almighty God. Any evil that seems to exist is a projection of man's mind. It's a it's a projection of our own ignorance of what reality is. Because in reality, there's just God itself. There's no other truth. There's no other power that exists. But because we think we're separate, we project a, a universe of separation in which evil things may be happening and all that stuff. And really, the the paradox and the irony is that we're creating all of it in our mind and all of the distortions that seem to be there in the world, what, like you said, slavery or, or bigotry, abuse, war, we could go on and on. These are all man-made co-creations based on our lack of awareness of the truth. But war, slavery, genocide, these things do not exist in reality. They do not exist in the kingdom of heaven. We create them in our own little bubble world here on this planet because we don't know who we are or who God is. So that's why the course is really delivers the most powerful truth that anyone could realize, which is the truth of not only just the truth of oneness, but the truth of one power. And I think that's the real game changer between ACIM and traditional Christianity is that there is no evil power we're here to fight or resist. We are here only to recognize and swear allegiance to and fall in love with the one perfect reality which God has made. So how do you personally manage when you see difficult 
situations or situations that upset you or anger you or frustrate you, like wars or people in power manipulating, you know, the populations or whatever it might be. The last few years we've seen some really crazy stuff going on. And I know my community were very angry at a lot of stuff. How, Mm -hmm. from your perspective, how do we manage that with this this kind of ethos that you have, which is beautiful, but as a human being witnessing these things, how do we kind of reconcile that? Well, that's certainly been something that I have spent a good deal of time speaking out about and teaching about on my channels because, you know, when we use this word duality, which is a commonly used term in spirituality, duality is uh, the belief in separation, essentially. But I like to see duality through the lens of believing that there is an inside world and an outside world that are separate from each other. And when we begin to realize that my inner world and my outer world are one world, not two, that to me is how we transcend duality and see oneness. And so as we recognize oneness in ourselves, we begin to recognize it in the world simultaneously. And that makes all of the things we see happening in the world very obvious, right? That, oh, these are clearly human distortions that we're creating because we don't know who we are. We don't know what love is. We don't believe love is the highest truth. And so, of course, we will co-create unloving realities for one another. And that actually does inspire forgiveness because it's like Jesus said when he was on being nailed to the cross, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. So like, here's this picture of Jesus forgiving his murderers while they're murdering him. And he found that forgiveness through the simple recognition that they don't know what they're doing. So it's like, forgive them, Father, for their spiritual blindness. Forgive them, Father, for their lack of knowledge. Forgive them for their blindness to love and truth. If someone is blind to the truth of love, how can we expect them to behave righteously? All righteousness comes from the awareness of love. So it doesn't inspire so much frustration or anger in me anymore, although some things do bring out some frustration, obviously, at times. But I've, I've really used the catalysts in our world over the last few years since the, the pandemic started to practice this. Um, the course calls it innocence. Practice seeing innocence in everything, which doesn't mean you excuse away you know, the evils people do to one another and say, oh, just go on murdering and killing. I'm not going to get involved or help because it's just your own ignorance. No, no, no. We still want to bring help and healing and love to the world, just like we want to bring help and healing to our own mind and heal our heal our own distortions. There's an equal measure of that desire to bring healing. It just doesn't come from a judgmental place anymore. It doesn't come from an angry, hateful place anymore where you're looking to fight something. You just realize, wow, there's so much darkness on this planet collectively that somebody needs to step up and start shining the light because only once we start shining the light, can these people in the world have an opportunity to see what the light is and make the choice for it, right? That is the the toughest catalyst in this third density plane is that the universe, again, is very honoring of free will. It will not force anybody to recognize the truth. 
It will not force anybody to acknowledge oneness. It will very much allow us to stay in our separated state and create more misery and suffering for each other until we have a change of heart and start seeking the light ourselves. So I think you and I and everyone listening here, our only real job in this day and age with all the insanity that we see manifesting is, am I embodying the light in myself first and foremost before I expect the world to be doing it, right? Let me not judge all the corrupt you know, financial elites in the world who are trying to bring all this control and tyranny. Let me not judge them if I have any greed left in myself. So that that becomes your number one concern rather than out there, out there. You're just like, mm, where am I still being greedy? Where am I still wanting to be feel superior to others? Where am I still wanting to control others? My control and greed may be a lot subtler than the Bill Gates of the world, but nevertheless, it's in me, right? And that's what all of these things represent. All of these people in the world, uh, we call them the elites, who are kind of acting out these um, agendas to gain control over humanity, they represent us, right? They are manifestations of what's in us because humanity is a collective consciousness. So this is also what the course teaches that you are the savior of the world. You are the Christ, the savior, but you have to save the world in here first, right? You have to stop hating it, judging it, seeing it as separate. You have to take responsibility for the things you see and forgive everything, and so you only see the innocence behind it all. And that actually brings light into the collective consciousness such that I think, Lauren, if 1% of us committed ourselves to this, we would see an entirely new world in, in a decade. You know, we would, see, we would see an enlightened civilization begin to manifest before our eyes. If even a fraction of humanity starts doing this. And so really right now, we're just trying to wake up and wake other people up to the fact that we have got to start embodying the light in ourselves because the consequences of not embodying the light are growing more and more severe by the day. I feel like a lot more people are waking up though, no? Absolutely, most definitely. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I certainly see it. I, I, there are those two polarities, like it seems like some people are going more down <laughs> the other way, but I certainly think that we are on our way to having at least 1% of the population of the planet certainly reaching or, or trying to shine their light. And I love what you said, I think, because from my understanding, what you're saying is it's not a case of spiritual bypass and kind of just being like, oh, well, you know, I just need to be happy here and shine the light from in here and ignore what's going on and do nothing. It's kind of like, there's that side of it of I need to sit in my silence and create that level of light and awareness and consciousness within me. But I can also campaign against things I don't believe in and things that I think need, you know, people there supporting. And, and also, you know, I hate, I hate when, when everything is referred to as a fight, you know, the fight against cancer, the fight against yeah. this, the fight against that. Because then again, we're in that, that polarity right and that kind of um warring mindset um yep so i think you know a lot of people got very angry with the whole pandemic stuff and you know you had people over that side and over that side and 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 from what i th i think you're saying it's more about shining your light and doing the action it's a bit like with manifestation right i always say it, it the kind of new a the old new age paradigm of manifestation was all about 
you know, say some manifestations, some, some affirmations and visualize and everything will happen for you. But you have to take the action as well. Like if I want to go to Spain, but I sit there and I'm like, I'm just going to say affirmations and visualize myself in Spain, but I don't actually step foot in an airport or buy a plane ticket. I'm not really helping the universe. So it's, it's kind of like the consciousness yep. as well as the action because we are in these human bodies. So we kind of have a responsibility to marry the two. Most definitely. And one of the series on my channel is called Spiritual Intelligence, where I talk about this very fact a lot, that um, spiritual intelligence is like a different intelligence quotient from like IQ or PQ. There's a certain type of intelligence inherent in all of us that needs to be awakened and utilized. And there's different ways that I describe or define spiritual intelligence. In a simple sense, it is the level of awareness that you have of your life lessons that are being brought to you. Every single experience in your life is attempting to teach you something and to offer you a reflection because everything is you, right? Everything is a reflection of who you are. And in that sense, you're only ever really seeing your own state of being. The way that you interpret life is interpreted through your current state of consciousness. So you see things not as they are, but as you are, as the famous saying goes. And so spiritual intelligence uh, in a more like for more working definition to me is the combination of your masculine and feminine. So masculine would be the self-awareness. Are you actually aware of your patterns and uh, different aspects of yourself? And then the feminine is the integration or embodiment. So as you said, it isn't enough to just see your own blind spots and be aware of your patterns, but you have to start embodying that awareness, right? You have to change your relationship to life in some way, such that you reflect a higher state of consciousness. And so it is very true that we can't just be aware of, let's say, things happening in the world and think that that's going to bring out enough change in the world, but we have to actually engage with the world according to that awareness. And that's why the fighting energy is always um, counterintuitive and self-defeating because what you fight, you strengthen and only the ego ever fights against reality, right? Because ego is what thinks it's separate from reality and sees reality as a kind of fearful enemy that may oppose me and, and threaten me. And so, from unity consciousness, we know that there's absolutely nothing to be fought against in God's perfect reality. There's just people who are asleep to that reality and need to be awakened. So like light doesn't have to fight the darkness. It just has to shine and the darkness is transmuted to light instantly. And so if that's a metaphysical principle of light, that also must hold true in ourselves, meaning we just have to embody the light not just in awareness, but in our state of being and the way we're engaging in our relationship with the world. And so that's one of my favorite ways to teach unity consciousness is through the, the lens of being in loving relationship to everything. If, if we could just define enlightenment or spiritual intelligence as one thing, we could say it is the state of being in loving relationship to everything. Now, the nuances of love, we can talk more about but if reality is love, if God is love, then that would be the state of full crystallization of I no longer engage in any way 
in unloving relationships. That's the hallmark of one who has recognized that all is one. So that's kind of the way I treat my daily spiritual practice of the things that show up in my life, in my mind. I want to be in a loving relationship to my own thoughts, to my own feelings, to my neighbor, to the challenging circumstance that happens later today at 2.30. You know, whatever it is, you're, you're always engaging in relationship. All of life, all of reality is relationship. Everything happens through relationship because everything's connected. So when you're tuning into that, you start being really mindful about the relationship you have with the world you live in. Man, a whole lot of people who think that they're awake are just giving off so much hatred and judgment towards the world and the things that are going wrong in it. And it's not, it's definitely a good thing to be aware of the dysfunctions of the world and what needs to be changed and healed. But you are doing the world no good and you are bringing about no positive change, holding this hatred, this judgment, this resentment in your heart towards it. The world will only be changed when the world is loved because in a real sense, it's not the world's problem, right? The, the war, the, the abuse, the tyranny is not the world's fault. It's human consciousness fault. It's we who are co-creating this on this planet which is inherently good and divine and perfect. So only we can bring healing to it, right? There's, there's nobody outside of me I can judge because everything I judge outside of me is a reflection of what's not healed in me. Like I said earlier, if I'm angry at the greedy billionaires who are trying to take control, I better have some, I for sure have some greed in me that hasn't been healed because as we heal as spiritual beings, you know this, Lauren, when you've truly worked through your own pride or arrogance or selfishness, and you you eventually see it in others, it's you immediately see it with compassion and understanding because you know that you were guilty of that same sin in that way. And you acted the same way before you had healed it. So you have no ability to judge people anymore for their arrogance. You just want to bring healing to them, right? That's the attitude that will bring real transformation on this planet. That takes so long to get to. I That person that you were talking about, the angry, that was me. I was like 15 years ago shouting from the rooftops about all the things I was researching and learning and everyone needs to hear this and, you know, like thinking everyone yep. was stupid for not. It takes a real journey into spirituality. Like I always find when people first have their, I don't even want to call it an awakening, but first start going down the rabbit holes and, you know, spirituality mm -hmm. and truths and the rest of it we do we can become quite angry and bitter at that time and it's only the deeper you go into it that you then start having all those realizations about all the things you just spoke about you know the law of one yeah it's inevitable it really is yeah totally what i'd love to speak about you mentioned relationship relationship between everything i'd love for us to speak about relationships as in the physical relationships we have with each other and especially you know, romantic relationships, how do we bring conscious consciousness into our relationships, into our marriages, our partnerships, whatever it might be? I love this question. I love this topic. Good. I truly think that conscious partnership is maybe the most powerful vehicle for spiritual transformation. Because as you know, as anyone who's been in a partnership knows, that level of intimacy you cultivate with someone will scoop down 
to the very bottom of the barrel inside of you and pull up anything in you that's selfish, that's, um, A Course in Miracles calls it the special relationship, which is the the classic romantic relationship where it's like, you complete me and I was nothing until I found you. It's this this denial of self and this disowning of all my good qualities onto somebody else and then trying to possess that person as my special person. You're the most attractive person and you're mine, which kind of makes me special, right? Uh, the, the ego only turns other people, especially romantic partners, into a kind of idol to be worshipped and possessed. And an idol that gives me all my self-worth, which... Hey, when things are going great in a romantic relationship, that seems to feel really great of, oh, we're in love and you complete me. But the second something goes wrong and it will go wrong, now it's incredibly painful. And so painful, in fact, that most people pretty much run away at the first sign of conflict because you just say, well, you're not my special person. I thought you were the special person, but clearly you're not because my special person would never talk to me that way or do that to me. And so we go on and on and on through special relationship after special relationship because there's no actual real love being given there. And so I talked about giving and receiving in relationship as kind of the lens for how oneness behaves in that, in that balance that's in the universe. Um, there's the, the inflowing and outgoing energies and everything, right? Everything is vibration. Everything is um, alive, spiraling. Uh, through positive, negative, positive, negative. That's what gives life to all form. And so this constant equal exchange of energy in every cell of my body, in the planetary systems, it has to be going on in balance everywhere. So if I'm in a special relationship, there's going to be some true giving, of course, but really most of what people are doing in those romantic relationships is they're taking and keeping, taking and keeping, meaning I want to I want to take all of your good qualities for myself. I want to keep you for myself. You know, the classic narcissistic boyfriend. You're not allowed to go out. You can't talk to guys. You can't do this or that because she's his property in his mind, right? So he can't let some other guy have his property. So that's not actually loving, is it? No, absolutely. So in that lens of the special relationship, the course provides... The alternative, which is called the holy relationship, which I just call loving relationship. And that's where there is a true giving and receiving, where we enter a romantic partnership saying, I'm not here to take anything from you. I'm not here for what I can get from you or how you can make me feel. I'm truly here to love and serve you because I see the divine in you. I see the beauty of God in you. And I want to love that beauty and serve it. And I have no expectations of what you're going to do for me. And so that's the premise we have to start a romantic relationship with. But where the nuance comes in is that although we never want to have any attachments to a romantic partner, any feelings of possession or control over them, at the same time, a a true loving relationship is giving and receiving. So if you're just truly giving love and you're with someone who's still in that specialness state, and they just want to take from you, and they're not really giving you back that same measure of true love, then you'll know that that person's not a match for you because you'll feel the uh, unequal energy exchange happening. I always say like two bank accounts, right? If you're a bank account and your partner's a bank account, 
as long as you're always depositing in them and they're always depositing in you, you're both going to be full and you're going to feel full of the love and the happiness of that relationship because there's giving and receiving always going on. But if one bank account starts taking withdrawals from the other and doesn't make deposits anymore, then we get burnt out. We fall out of love and all these things because really there's just an unequal balance of energy exchange. So when I look at conscious partnership through that lens, then it becomes this amazing catalyst for spiritual expansion because again, your selfishness, your greed, your specialness, your clinginess will come out towards that person. A, a romantic partnership is like the shiniest object that ego could ever want to possess, right? And so it's going to bring out all the ego's shit at some point. And that is the blessing and the service that conscious partnership provides us. Because if you say, I'm devoted to you as my partner and my mirror, just like I'm devoted to God, it's called uh, bhakti, as you might know in Hinduism, it's the devotional yoga where I'm not going to run away the second a conflict arises. I'm going to take radical responsibility for what I contributed to that conflict and heal that in myself because only you can bring out the things in me that are the most secretive and the most hidden, right? My mom or dad can't bring those things out. Uh, not even my best friend will probably bring those things out of me as much as a romantic partnership will. So I could go on and on as you see about this topic, but for me, it has been uh, just like A Course in Miracles, conscious partnership is right up there with one of the most transformative devices I've taken advantage of. I agree. That's why I, I raised it. I, I think it's such an important thing for us to be speaking about in romantic relationships, in in kind of all our relationships, I guess. How, because obviously there's so much stuff within religion and sex. How does sex play into this with mm. relationships with, I mean, can we talk about Kundalini awakenings? Certainly. You go. <laughs> yeah. I'm off. Here I go. <laughs> this is my favorite topic. I know. I, know. I can't wait to hear, hear you talk about all this because I've heard you speaking about it before. And, you know, and for anyone, and you've mentioned your channel a few times, for anyone listening, absolutely go over to Aaron's YouTube channel and we'll speak about 5D University in a bit. But yeah, let's go into the Kundalini mm -hmm. stuff because this is, this is spicy. It is. And this is um, one of the really great teachings in the Law of One that I appreciate the most is the Law of One actually talks a lot about this idea of sexual energy exchange and, and the way that that works out through the, uh, the chakras, the seven energy centers. And so we see, we can see through the energy centers, if you have a basic understanding of the energy centers, how that specialness versus loving relationship really plays out is that we don't even have the ability to be in a truly loving relationship until the heart chakra has been activated. And that's the fourth chakra, which is the green ray energy center. Green ray, our green ray energy is the energy of love, the awareness of oneness. And that is um, the law of one calls it densities, the seven densities of consciousness. Every chakra of, of the seven in our body represents one of the seven densities of consciousness. And so we're kind of like this microcosm of the macrocosm in that the universe has these seven densities of consciousness. It's like a progression of the way that consciousness evolves. So first density is the five elements of earth, water, fire, air, and space or ether. 
Consciousness has to spend billions and billions of years in the first density, just learning what it's like to exist in the universe as a individual entity of some kind. And then eventually consciousness will evolve into the second density, which is represented by the second chakra, the orange ray, sacral chakra. And that's the density of growth and movement and interaction. So, you know, mineral life, vegetable life, animal life, that whole spectrum is the second density of consciousness, where now consciousness is existing in an organism of some kind that has to be in relationship to its environment and to other organisms. And so although there's no real personal ego developed yet in those three kingdoms, there is a kind of awareness happening, right, of individuality. But then we get to the third density, the third chakra, solar plexus, and that's when self-awareness is evolved, when consciousness is now vibrating fast enough that it can start to realize, hey, who am I? I am an individual self, and therefore I can now contemplate my past and my future and my personal desires. And the basic difference we see between a human being and an animal, you could describe that as third density consciousness. An animal doesn't really have the ability to stress over the future or feel guilt about their past because there's no real personal identity in the mind yet that can think about those things. So third density is where we're at now in human consciousness. And the law of one says that in 2012, our planet finally shifted or became magnetized, let's say, to the fourth density of consciousness, which is the heart chakra, the green ray. And that is when consciousness is now vibrating fast enough that it can become aware of that underlying fabric of oneness. And that's what we call love. And so when we get into the conversation of sexual energy exchange, uh, Ra, who's the entity that channels the law of one, Ra talks about... Um, most sexual interactions on our planet are purely red, orange, or yellow ray, meaning they're all about me, right? What I can get, my pleasure. I'm going to possess you. I'm going to make you my pleasure device so I can feel good. And there's that endless craving, that endless lust and need to have that lust satisfied. And so that only finds completion when we activate the heart chakra and we can finally exchange green ray energy with another being. And so the green ray energy exchange is really beautiful when you look at it through the lens of sexual interaction, because now you're coming into the sex act, not looking to get fulfilled and use the other person for your own pleasure. But you're saying, again, how can I give you pleasure? How can I make love to you such that I don't even care about the pleasure I get out of this? That's not my first concern. Obviously, you're going to have pleasure if you're having sex, right? But it's no longer your number one motive. Your true motive is, man, I love this being so much, and I want to be intimate with them and give them my love and let them feel my love. And if you have that intention during sex with your partner, the law of one says you are exchanging green ray energy. And that's actually a very polarizing act for consciousness to exchange loving energy like that in sex. And it has the ability to expand consciousness greatly. So there's, this is where Tantra comes in. And Tantra has really studied this for thousands of years of how to ascend in consciousness through sex and sexuality, because it is a very polarizing act when it's done through the heart. 
But again, most people are not using their heart in the, in sexual exchange. It's just those lower three chakras of the sort of the ego chakras of possession and control and self-pleasuring. And so you're actually polarizing more to the negative when you use sex like that. So just like with anything, right? There's very different consequences to, to anything based on the way that you approach or use that thing. And sex, probably the foremost of all. Yeah, I, I mean, my husband and I have been on a journey uh, with Tantra for a while now and really gone deep into, well, as deep as, as we have up until now with, with some of these teachings. And you do find that it it does connect you to consciousness on a deeper level. You do arrive then in a place of what we call conscious union, sacred union, which enables you to respect and honor that person more and have that received back. And then that enables you to bring more light to the world, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, in a sense, in a sense, we could almost say sexuality is everything. But what do we mean when we say that? We don't mean that personal lust. We mean that your, your sexuality is kind of like the way you express your being in a sense. It's a it's the primal aspect of what you are as a human. And so we live in a in the 3D plane, everything is primal, everything is physical and tangible. And so it's like if I'm at a if I'm at a level of consciousness where I'm using sex not for self-pleasuring only, but to actually be of service to someone else and to make love, to give love, then you better believe that's going to show up in every lesser device in my life because sex is kind of for for the for the mind it's like the most desired thing that there is and so that's why it's really hard to overcome your sexual lusts and distortions because the the amplitude behind sexuality is really strong for the ego there's there's so much identity wrapped up in our sexuality as we see in our world today on full display people are fully identified with their either their gender or their sexuality such that it's Basically, the only thing they think about themselves is what's my sexuality, what's my gender. And that's actually just the most foundational level of what you are. And everything else from there builds upon that. So if your foundation is off, everything else will be off. So like if you've done the inner work to the point where you have gotten beyond your personal lusts and things with sex, and you can truly give love to somebody in the sex act, you better believe that's going to show up in the way you talk to the grocery store person and the police officer who pulls you over, the stranger you walk past, like that, that sacred sexuality that you're finally able to express will permeate through every other relationship you have. Cause as, as we say, right, the way you are with one thing is the way you are with everything. Which is why it's crazy that organized religion has made sex, this evil thing that we should fear. Um, and given so many people so much fear around, it, it kind of just seems mental, really, because actually when you are, uh, you know, and I teach this with my women that I, uh, you know, I, we, I te teach a lot of divine feminine stuff and sacred sexuality. When a woman's in her sexual power, she becomes a magnet for incredible things. And she starts shining her light when she loves, yeah. when she loves herself and she feels you know, magnetic to other people, she becomes a light. So it is crazy that I guess the modern world has taken it out of context so deeply. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. and what you say about, 
it shows up everywhere. I guess, you know, I have a lot of, of parents listening to this podcast and, and I see it showing up in parenting as well. And I think that's also really interesting and, 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 and a good place yeah. to go with it because I mean, only today, just before I came here, I was a little bit late getting to the studio because my son fell over and he cut himself. He's only seven. He really hurt himself. And I was thinking, oh my God, I'm going to be late for the studio and I don't have time to email Aaron and, you know, I'm going to be late. And then I was like, hold on. My son, who's seven, is crying because he's hurt himself. The way for me to be the best person I can be right now is to give love to my son in the moment that he needs it. Everything else will wait. Very good. How I show up in my parenting is consciousness. How, Like you said, how you show up to how you speak to the police officer that, that pulls you over when you're speeding, how you you know show up to the mm -hmm. janitor, the whoever it is. That's, yeah. to me, what consciousness is. You're absolutely right. Um, who you are being in the world is what you're giving to the world. And we talked about be in the state of giving and receiving. The Course of Miracles says giving and receiving are one. They are the same because that's that's how oneness demonstrates itself through giving and receiving. So like uh, the, the example I'll always give for how giving and receiving are one is like a conversation. When I'm, you and I are having a conversation right now, if one of us just decides to own the whole conversation and just steamroll the other person, never let them talk, then we're doing a lot of giving and no receiving. And so when I finally become quiet, I finish my thoughts and I let you talk. Now I'm putting myself in a state of receiving to you. I'm letting you give to me. But isn't that also a kind of gift I'm giving to you? Right to, to let you give to me is also a gift to you because I want to let you feel heard and I want to let you feel seen. So, you know, we all, we all hate the experience of trying to give a friend a gift or something and, or tip someone a lot. And they're like, Oh no, 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 I can't receive that. That's too much. That's too much. And the person doesn't realize it, but it's a kind of selfishness to refuse another person's gift because really the best gift you could give them in return is this immense gratitude and thankfulness to receive their gift because that makes them feel good. And then you feel good and you both polarize spiritually. So you're very right in seeing that in the catalyst with your son and see, I just love how life creates these situations. It's so intelligent where it'll, it'll put those things we, we value the most, like your career, your job, you want to be on time, you know, all that stuff look professional and it'll, it'll hang that on a string, like a carrot or something, and then make you have to be present for something seemingly less important. And that's where life shows you how conscious you really are and Thankfully for you, you had the awareness to see, no, no, no. The most important thing right now is being loving to my son. Nothing else is more important than being loving. So when we translate this back to the sex conversation, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 you go. Um, when we translate this back to the sex conversation, like sex, sex is the most intimate thing we do with another person. And so it requires the most vulnerability. Like if we're going to have that green ray energy exchange, we have to first do what? Be open, be vulnerable, not hide, not feel ashamed, not shrink back. We have to fully give ourselves to our partner and they have to fully give themselves. And then in that open-hearted vulnerability, we can exchange real amazing intimacy. So it's like, if this person you value the most in life, if you're willing to be the most vulnerable with them, 
How much easier is it going to be to be vulnerable to the police officer, the grocery store attendant, the stranger on the street? Everything else is easier than that from a consciousness perspective. So that's, again, why we should all be using our sexual energy exchange with our partners as a kind of spiritual practice of, can I be more open today? Can I be less clinging today? Can I have less attachment to an outcome? All of that stuff that gets in the way of love. And just, can I be as fully present to serve and love and make love to this being whom I love? And if you, I promise you, if you start practicing that with that conscious intention, you will start seeing it with your relationship to your son when he scrapes his knee. You know what I mean? It will show up everywhere in your ability to be fully present and available. Totally. What I was going to say was just like disclaimer. I'm, <laughs> I'm not always like that. Obviously, like life gets in the way. And just so that everyone listening doesn't think I'm this, you know, that I think I'm this perfect <laughs> being who never like, you know, loses it with my kids or whatever. But what I am starting to do a lot more as the days goes on, go on more and more is have that awareness. You know, if I have, we're trying to get out the house early in the morning and everyone's, you know, got a problem. And, you know, my daughter's mm-hmm. crying about the color of her coat isn't the color she wanted right now. And, you know, all of these things, am I able to keep my calm in those moments? And no, I'm not always, but having the awareness around it is enabling me to come closer each time to, to, to retaining that level of consciousness. I think. Yes. A hundred percent. I mean, again, we see another parallel to, um, the way our sexuality shows up everywhere. Like if you're truly making love to your partner, not for you, but just to, to serve them and love them, And then hopefully they're doing the same thing too. So you're both receiving a whole lot of pleasure from each other, but it's not your number one intention to get pleasure anymore. Then like if you're making love to your partner a certain way and they say, hey, that doesn't feel good, do this instead or something. And then you take that personally as an offense, right? And you get offended. That's a sign that you're in it for you, right? If you're truly in it for them, you just say, oh, great. Thanks for the feedback. I just want to do whatever's best for you. And so that will show up in the the morning time when you're trying to do something and your daughter's having a fit and your husband's stressed out and all this stuff and you're having to be available to people. Well, if you're not, if you're truly just there to be of service to the people you love, it's not that stressful situation. You're just going to help whoever needs your help in that moment with no attachment to the outcome. I mean, these things all become easier when we start bringing that sacred, sacred sexuality kind of energy to things of I'm truly just here to be of service and to open my heart to the present moment in the fullest way. I mean, that is sexuality in its most exalted form, right? Is that what Kundalini awakening is? The energy centers that allow us to reach those states of consciousness? Yeah, so you may you may have heard this before, Lauren, that um, Kundalini is sometimes called sexual energy that our sexual energy is kundalini, but kundalini, and this is why I love the law of one, because the law of one shows us this picture through the energy centers that the human being right now on our planet has the first three energy centers in activation upon birth. Uh, An animal, for example, has the first two energy centers activated, but not the third, because the third is again, self-awareness, which you know, maybe dolphins and elephants may have some yellow ray activation, like really intelligent, self-aware animals, but most don't. Now, the same is true for humans in that most humans don't have the heart chakra activated upon birth, right? They, we have to earn it. We have to um, uh, do a lot of spiritual practice to get it to activate. 
And that's part of the evolution. So for those of us who are, who've been doing this, the spiritual work on the heart chakra, the heart chakra is activated by being of service to others. In fact, in the law of one, Ra calls the service to others path or polarity, sorry, the positive polarity, they call it the service to others path. And the negative polarity, they call it the service to self path, um, positive, negative, light, darkness. And so the, the reason they call it that is because the primary way to polarize positively is to be of service to others. And that's what opens the heart chakra. And so this really amazing kind of neurobiological transformation starts to happen literally in our nervous system as we raise our consciousness to that fourth density level in that this kundalini energy is lying mostly dormant at the base of the spine. And when we put a certain demand on it, usually through spiritual practices and yoga and whatnot, it will eventually ignite, so to speak, and start permeating its way through our nervous system. And what it's doing is it's actually upgrading our nervous system from a third density level to a fourth density level. And so if you've ever had, for example, like a oneness experience and anybody listening, like think back to that, that mystical moment you had where you realized that the universe is one and that you are one with the universe, whatever, however that showed up for you. Now, how fast do those realizations usually wear off? Usually pretty quick, right? And that's because most people are operating from a third density nervous system. They don't have fourth density or green ray energy in activation yet. So if they realize oneness, which is a green ray realization, they can we can realize it here and there, but it's very fleeting and it doesn't last, right? And very quickly, we're back into our normal state of consciousness. And that's because we're kind of like, it's like too much RPMs for the engine of our third density nervous system. We need more bandwidth. We need more vibrational capacity. And that's the evolutionary purpose of Kundalini. Kundalini was placed in the nervous system as part of the evolutionary process by the universe so that when, a, when the human being starts desiring love and oneness and God and service, that energy will come into activation and begin expanding their nervous system so that over time, gradually, the awareness of oneness is sustainable. And it's not just a fleeting experience but it's actually able to last in awareness and become our new default mode. Well, if oneness has become your default mode of awareness, we call that enlightenment usually, that's a sure sign that your kundalini has awakened and has made her way up the spine, at least up to the fourth center, because you literally wouldn't be able to have that awareness if kundalini wasn't active, right? If the heart chakra wasn't open, you wouldn't be able to see oneness like that. Uh, just like the animal can't be self-aware because it just doesn't have the third chakra in activation yet. So it's pretty amazing when you see this process through the chakras that we're actually ascending vertically through our energy centers as our consciousness expands and the, the sexual energy exchange we've been talking about, as you can see, is a very heart chakra opening practice that for a lot of people like Kundalini will activate during sex, right? We've all heard those stories an orgasm or something might even set it off. And then someone begins a full-blown kundalini awakening because that green ray energy you can have in a sexual union is just so irresistible to kundalini.
it's also kind of, uh, you know, if we want to go down a rabbit hole, a tinfoil <laughs> rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> when, you know, I, I talk a lot about kind of dulling down the pineal gland. And when you talk about how deeply uh-huh. the nervous system is connected to these energy centers, it makes a lot of sense as to why, you know, the darker forces, whatever you want to call it, are trying to dull down our pineal glands to stop us having that connection to our energy centers, to our this, these kundalini awakenings by giving us these nervous system dysregulations. Does that make sense? Oh, 100%. Yeah, that's one of the big challenges of our world today is that we live in such an incredibly toxic, poisoned environment because of our food supply, our water supply, the air we breathe, like everything has been inundated with toxins and chemicals because some very smart people a very long time ago started to figure out that sickness is very profitable, just like war is very profitable, right? So there's always a new reason to go to war. Uh, There's always another good reason to make people more sick because that plays on our fear of death. And hey, if I am if I get a diagnosis, I'll do whatever the doctor tells me to do. I'll buy whatever pill they tell me to buy. Take my money, I'm gonna die. You know, It gets us in that fear state where we outsource our power. And that is another catalyst on this planet right now for human beings to begin taking our power back is that we have to stop outsourcing our basic needs um, to people and things outside of us because there's huge consequences to doing that, right? One of those consequences is if you th- if you just trust the food you're buying is, is healthy for you and you don't actually investigate, no, I want to know how these companies are making this food. I want to know what potential toxins they're putting in this food to preserve it longer, longer shelf life, right? Insecticide. I'm not just going to walk through life ignorant to these obvious truths that People want to make money. And so profit is always the number one motive to a corporation. So like just basic self-awareness and wisdom says, let me do some real research on how these companies are making the food I'm eating. And it doesn't mean I, I go fight them and get angry if I find out that they're putting a bunch of poison in my food. It just means I stop eating that food. And maybe I go buy organic. Maybe I grow my own food. But I have to change my relationship in that way. And so you're right that most of humanity is still not really aware of this fact that everything in our environment, the, the chemicals we use to clean, the the lotions and soaps we put on our skin are full of these endocrine disruptors and um, chemicals that will calcify the pineal gland, which makes it that much more difficult to um, have spiritual insight and awareness. So it's very much playing itself out in the physical just as much as it is on the spiritual. You know, they're really a reflection of one another. And so this is um, our opportunity here as souls is like, there's these certain basic lessons that every soul has to learn in order to graduate from this realm and graduate to fourth density. Love is ultimately that lesson, but there's many ways to learn what love is like. And one of the most fundamental lessons that we have to learn here is how to become self-sufficient, right? How to become self-responsible, uh, self-reliant. If if you believe that anyone outside of yourself should take care of you, you have a disempowerment problem, right? Absolutely. Now that's not wrong for people who think that. 
Like a lot of people say, oh, the government should pay my my salary and give me free healthcare and give me free this and free that. It's not that that's wrong. It just is what it is, but it is a disempowerment problem because now we're at a point on our planet where the corruption is growing by the day, or at least the, the, the exposure of the corruption is growing by the day. And we have to become aware that there are certain people on this planet who only have one motive, which is to take more power, accumulate more wealth at whatever cost necessary. And that's the negative polarity, right? So there are negatively polarized forces on our planet that we have all co-created that want to take power over humanity as much as possible. And so if you're still living from this disempowered place of, of outsourcing all your basic needs to systems in the world and whatnot, unfortunately, you're going to pay some huge, heavy consequences for that. And we saw that with the vaccine mandates during the pandemic and so many other things. Like Because our planet is trying to make this evolutionary shift from third to fourth density, we're kind of at this place where it's like evolve or die. You know, the, the consequences of being unaware and disempowered are continuing to grow by the day. And so that's another way the universe forces us to wake up and become self-responsible, become empowered and become self-sufficient. And when you do, you don't have to worry about the corrupt systems of the world anymore. They no longer affect you and you're not outsourcing to them. But as long as you are, you're in a kind of enslavement relationship where you're you're depending your basic needs on somebody else and isn't that a perfect spiritual parallel it's what i've been speaking about since my own healing journey that we have to take responsibility for our own well-being um and our own lives you know stop outsourcing like you say stop relying on other people other the government the state the pharmaceutical companies whatever it might be yeah. to fix us to heal us and 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 being proactive not reactive i'll wait till i get sick and then i'll do something about it yeah as opposed to being proactive in our health. Um, yeah. Tell me about 5D University. Yeah, so it's actually 4D University. 4D, sorry, 4D. Yeah, because that makes because, sense from what, yeah, 4D, obviously. <laughs> yeah, I, I hear this all the time because 5D is, is become, a much more yeah. well-known concept than 4D, but 5D is dealing with dimensions, right? Five-dimensional awareness, whereas densities deal with... Uh, the evolutionary stage of consciousness. So a density actually refers to the, the, the speed of the vibration in the photon, meaning that consciousness manifests through light. All, all creation, all form is light, right? As we know, electromagnetic energy. And so as light vibrates faster, like the, the more density of light there is in a given space, the more information there is because light is information. And so the more information is available, the more ability consciousness has to express itself. So the densities refer to consciousness's ability to express itself at any given level. So fourth density really is the same thing as fifth dimension, but it's going back to that chakra, right? The fourth chakra, which is the awareness of love. So 4D University was a big passion project that I had for many years. And it took me a full year uh, all through 2021 into 2022 of kind of building it out and building the curriculum because I really, I, I feel like this is the message humanity needs more than anything right now, that we are all one, but we must realize this 
and unite together in love, in oneness, if we're going to heal all these problems and really potentially even survive, period, we have to stop being separate from each other. We have to become one. And that is fourth density consciousness. You can't expect people to be aware of that if they're in third density consciousness. So we need teaching devices like A Course in Miracles, like The Law of One, like all these amazing texts we could read that teach people how to integrate that state of consciousness, how to evolve into it. And so 4D University was just sort of my attempt at creating a, a tool or a vehicle for people to use that will do that. And so it's basically a seven-month curriculum that the end goal is to teach you how to self-facilitate a kundalini awakening. But because kundalini awakening, as I'm sure you know, Lauren, can have some pretty severe consequences if someone's not ready. I didn't want to just make a program that teaches people how to awaken it on their own because, yeah, you can do that. But if you haven't done a decent amount of inner work and if you haven't at least learned or practiced how to sit with your pain, right, and meet your pain and forgive it and heal from your traumas at least somewhat, then when Kundalini awakens, she's like a fire that never stops burning until the whole forest is consumed. So she will work her way up your spine through the nervous system and she will burn through all of your third density karma that's not healed yet. And so a lot of people have um, a very painful and challenging Kundalini awakening because they have a lot of stuff that's unhealed in themselves. And then you set her off and she's kind of merciless in the way that she tears through your nervous system. Uh, the, the Hindu analogy of this, they use the Shakti and Shiva principle where Shakti is in the root chakra and Shiva is in the third eye. And they're like long lost lovers that have been separated through the incarnation. And so Shakti wants to return to her lover and Shiva wants to call her up. And so they work together to bring her up at any cost necessary, just like two lover, estranged lovers would do, right? So we have to kind of prepare the way for them to unite within us, masculine and feminine. And that means we got to know how to do some inner work and inner healing. So because I didn't want to just risk people who may be not ready to awaken their Kundalini, we do four months of really intensive mind training and inner healing and education on how to really prepare the way for Kundalini. So the first course is called Master Your Mind. And that's kind of the mind training, um, understanding the, the metaphysics of our universe, oneness and um, the law of balance and learning to live and operate by those laws. That's kind of the foundation. The next masterclass is called Meditation Mastery, where we start using meditation as a vehicle to deepen our state of self-awareness and really start doing some inner work, really start cleaning out some of the pipes, so to speak, and all the unfinished business that you better believe Kundalini is going to deal with if you don't deal with it first. So we have a four-month kind of foundation building phase. And then the third program is a three-month course that uh, teaches a twice-daily kind of yoga slash breathwork routine. And I call it, I just like to call it for convenience, neurotropic breathwork, because neurotropic means uh, getting into the nervous system or returning to the nervous system. So it's basically a practice we use to prepare the nervous system for this activation. And um, 
you know, whether it's yoga practices like bandhas or asanas, or whether it's different breath work techniques, there's things we can do to stimulate the nervous system to open, which is what yoga is was invented for thousands of years ago. And as we open the nervous system and as we practice um, being in loving relationship, Kundalini awakens very quickly with that combination. And so it's been a really fun experience over the last kind of year and a half, or I guess year that I've been running for the university because we have all sorts of different varieties of Kundalini awakenings happening. But the one theme seems to be that uh, we haven't had someone go through a really like painful, tumultuous Kundalini activation yet, because I sort of make people put in the work before we get to that point. And it's been a really successful model. So I just leave it open to the world of, hey, if you're interested in ascending to a fourth density level of consciousness, which happens by awakening Kundalini, you know, here's a, here's a platform I created to teach you how to do that. Beautiful. And, um, everyone can find that. Um, what remind me your, uh, Instagram is Aaron Abke, right? It's just your name. Yeah. Yeah. At Aaron Abke and then, um, 4duniversity.com. Amazing. All right. Very quick, uh, rapid fire round. Wellness is. Wholeness. Beautiful. A practice everyone can be doing to strengthen their connection to God. Meditation. When or how are you most inspired? Uh, when I'm creating, for sure. You're most writing or... Yeah. What's that? No, I'm sorry. I was cutting you off going to the next one already. I realized I was kind of... I left that kind of blank. Like If I'm writing or, or making a video content, for sure, that's when I feel the most lit up. Yeah. Uh, your most valuable failure. Oh, most valuable failure. Um, that's, that's a good question. I guess I can't really say what the most valuable failure is, but I I'll say that my relationship to failure has, uh, changed very dramatically through my spiritual practice in that even, um, a certain egoic reaction coming out of you, we could call that a failure but I've learned that a, a failure is really just a lesson being offered and you can totally waste your time and energy by feeling guilty and ashamed of the mistake. Or you can say, wow, I need to learn this lesson. What's the lesson being offered here? And you can really internalize that. And so those little failures each and every day, I notice things my mind is still doing that are out of alignment with truth. And I just say, ah, thank you awareness for showing me that. So failure to me is such a, a non-negative word now that it would be hard to choose the best one, but I'd probably need more time to think about it. Oh, maybe we can come back to that another time. Um, Aaron, yeah, maybe. I've loved this exchange. Thank you so much. It's been so, um, no pun intended, enlightening. <laughs> so um, <laughs> it's, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Lauren. It was a true pleasure. Take care. Whew, I really uh, can imagine that you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. An hour and 40 minutes went by like that um, because we delved deep, right? So I know that you would have enjoyed this episode and got so much out of it. 
Uh, If you did, please like and share this episode with a friend who you know will benefit from it uh, and rate and review the podcast. Thank you to our sponsors, Amrita and Sensate for partnering with Reconditioned for this season. And thank you to you for listening and for being here. I appreciate you.